I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. Usually when we refer to this, the idea of there only being suffering and the end of suffering, we're talking about the kinds of truths that are hidden in our world that are not so easily faced and that are covered up. And the full realization, the openness, the opening to this truth of suffering, bringing us to the end of suffering. But actually there is another way of understanding this statement. I teach one thing and one thing only, and that is suffering and the end of suffering. And that's about a way of viewing ourselves and viewing others, viewing life itself. And we can look at ourselves and see that there are certain actions and there are certain mind states, certain habits, or there are certain ways of being that we have that actually do bring pain and difficulty and suffering and unhappiness. And there are other actions and other ways of being, other mind states that bring joy, bring openness, bring happiness, bring delight. There are certain aspects that bring us to suffering. There are certain aspects that bring us to the end of suffering. If you can imagine within yourself, just for a moment, a mind that does not judge at all in terms of right and wrong and good and bad and good and evil, that is not judging with those reference points, but in fact is directly perceiving life in terms of suffering and the end of suffering, those things which lead to pain and sorrow, those things which lead to happiness and joy. What would happen if we looked at ourselves that way, through that lens, if we looked at others in that way? All of the different things that come up just in an hour of sitting here, What would be the difference if that was the perspective or the view we were holding rather than condemning, rather than judging, rather than evaluating? It seems that there wouldn't be guilt, there wouldn't be shame, there wouldn't be fear. When we saw those things that lead to suffering, there would be compassion. When we saw those things which lead to the end of suffering, there would be rejoicing. It would be a very different mind than the one that we have conditioned. It would be quite incredible to see the world in this way, to see ourselves and others just in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. This is the state that we can call Buddha mind, the mind of a Buddha, the mind of enlightenment, where we can act out of compassion without rejecting somebody, but rather in the same way as if we saw a child moving towards a flame, towards a fire, knowing that they would be hurt, we can move to try to prevent that pain 
And when we see action that is going towards the end of suffering, we don't feel apart from it. We don't feel separate from it. We don't have to feel jealous of it. This is Buddha mind. And it's the mind that is the potential of all of us as we purify, as we come to understand, as we go beyond that very tight and narrow conditioning that has us judging all of the time. I have a friend who was once sitting the three-month retreat that we teach every year in Barry, And at one point, he was having a very difficult time. He decided that the resolution to all of his troubles would be to leave the retreat and check into a motel and watch a football game. And so he did it. The teacher that he was working with in that retreat was this woman, Deepama, who was an incredibly giving and loving person. But nonetheless, having done this act, having gone into town and seen the football game, he began to suffer not only from having done it and found no relief, but from the terrible guilt about having done it and feeling that he had to tell his teacher, Deepama. And so there was a lot of thought about, you know, what is she going to say? And she's going to think I'm a terrible person and a horrible student and, you know, I've betrayed her and she's going to hate me. And there was all of that that was building all of the time as he prepared himself to go see her. When he actually did go see her and he, he told her what he had done, she reached over and took his hand and said, that's all right. Now that is that mind which knows that the love it feels is not harmed, it's not tainted, it's not diminished by somebody acting in a way that is bringing suffering to themselves. And so the Buddha talked about developing a mind that is like space. It's so filled with love that it's like space so that paint cannot mar it, it cannot tarnish it. If there's somebody standing here in the middle of the room throwing paint around in the air, there's no canvas, there's no, nothing to hold it, there's nothing to hold onto it. And so the space is not hurt by it. It's not colored by it. That is the mind that the Buddha talked about cultivating, so filled with love that it's like that space. That is also our potential. This mind, it seems, doesn't even necessarily see people as separate, permanent entities. It's not that mind that would say to somebody, even oneself, well, you're this way, and you've always been this way, and you'll always be this way, that's who you are, that terrible quality. You know, it's not that mind which says, I'm such a bad person and I did a very bad thing and I'll always be bad. It doesn't solidify reality in that mistaken way. It sees waves of 
actions and forces that come and go, that arise and pass away, and sees that this body and this mind or this life are in continual flux and continual change and transformation. And because of that, there's always in every moment the possibility of really radical change. Because every moment, literally, not just poetically or figuratively, but literally in every moment we are dying and being reborn, we and all of life, within this tremendous amount of flux and change and transformation, there is continually the possibility of finding a new direction. From this perspective, the world, as we see it, we see that some things, some elements, lead to pain and others to happiness. The world becomes almost transparent as we just see these forces coming and going. We understand the interconnectedness of all that lives, that nothing is stagnant, nothing is separate, that we are all intimately woven into this fabric, that the things we care about, the things that we do, they make a difference because we are all connected. To see suffering and the end of suffering, that is our potential for Buddha mind. The Buddha described the mind, your mind, my mind, everybody's mind, as being naturally radiant and pure. So that this is the natural state of the mind. It's naturally radiant and pure. And that it's because of visiting forces such as defilements that we suffer or we experience ourselves as being in bondage. The mind is naturally radiant and pure. It is because of these visiting forces, these defilements, that we suffer. The word defilement is a common and awkward translation, very awkward translation, of a Pali word, kalesa, which much more literally means torment of the mind. To see that there are certain qualities of mind that when they arise strongly within us, they have a tormenting quality to them. What we learn from looking at our experience day after day, from looking within and seeing the nature of the mind, is that these defilements or these torments are just visiting, that they do not reflect the actual nature of the mind. They're adventitious. They're not inherent to who we are. They don't live here. They do not reflect who we really are. They are visiting. Of course, often they knock at the door and we invite them in and we say, oh, welcome home, you know, please make yourself comfortable for a good long stay. That is the difficulty. There is no doubt whatsoever that these forces will arise within us. This is the conditioned nature of the mind for these, these elements, these kalesas to arise. And that is not something to judge. They're arising. That is simply how we're conditioned. But the skill we develop is to see how once they have arisen, we can graciously have them leave. 
rather than letting them make themselves completely at home. I have a friend who once invited somebody from Asia over to the States. When I saw this person, I said to him, well, how long is this person that you've invited going to stay? And as he looked at me, his eyes got really big. And he said, he's staying two or three years. He didn't tell me that when I invited him. And it kind of reminded me of the way we so often are with these different forces that come up in the mind, like fear and guilt and greed. They come knocking at the door, and we say, welcome home. We forget that actually we live here, that the mind is naturally radiant and pure, and they are simply visiting. We can ask them to leave. The way that the Buddha described it was to say, abandon that which is unskillful. You can abandon the unskillful. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. If abandoning the unskillful were in some way to bring harm or suffering, I would not ask you to do it. But because it brings you happiness and freedom, that is why I say, abandon that which is unskillful. And he went on to say, Cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. And continued that, that phrase. If we're in any way to bring you harm or suffering, I would not ask you to do it. But because it brings you joy and happiness, that is why I say cultivate the good. That is our potential as human beings. We abandon that which is unskillful, not because we're afraid of those states, not because we have contempt for those states, but really out of the greatest love and compassion for ourselves. We abandon that which is unskillful. It's like honoring and respecting our very deep wish to be truly happy, to be happy in a sustained way, not just in a fleeting way. We abandon the unskillful with confidence, that, in fact, we can be happy, just as the Buddha said. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. We abandon the unskillful and we cultivate the good out of great love for others as well, to abandon that which will bring harm rather than follow it through. (coughs) We let go in the same way that we let go of a burden because actually we're carrying around these things that we don't really need. We may once have thought we needed them, but in fact we don't need them. We can let go of them. That's what a path actually is. It's knowing and being able to discern for oneself what's skillful, what's unskillful. It's the actual practice of letting go of those things that bring harm the cultivation of those things which bring true happiness. I like the word abandon in this context because actually we're holding on very tight to many things. It's not that mostly we are so relaxed in our beings, so at peace with ourselves at some still point that an act of abandoning something is like violently pushing it away or forcefully shoving it out of the way. It's not throwing away 
these different qualities. Really, we are holding on very tightly. And to come to stillness means to realize that we are holding on, that we're gripping very tightly, and from that point, relaxing, relinquishing, and letting go. So it's like coming back to a still point within us. Rather than out of anger or aversion, shoving something out of the way. It's like, I don't know if you've ever had this experience. It's a very common experience in doing mindfulness practice. We're doing an ordinary activity, let's say brushing your teeth. And in a moment of mindfulness, you can realize that, in fact, you're holding onto that toothbrush so tight, it's like it were a jackhammer in your hand. You know, that's how much forcefulness, that's the grip with which we approach many things in life. And we realize we're holding on in that way, we can relax. That is the still point. That's the abandoning or the letting go. <coughs> I also like the word abandon, abandon that which is unskillful, because it implies the, the delight and the happiness and the joy of letting go when there's no holding back and none of this gripping, none of this excessive tightness, there is a liberation of energy which is very joyful. It's like when the poet Ryukan said, abandon this world, abandon yourself, and the moon and flowers will guide you along your way. If we can abandon these qualities that cause us pain or cause us suffering, it's like the moon and the flowers will, will be reflected in the natural stillness and loving kindness in our own minds. We will be guided along our way. There are some unskillful forces that are very pronounced in meditation practice. And we come here and we get quiet and we look within and some of the strongest forces that we see are what are called in the classical teachings the hindrances. Sometimes it's very funny reflection to be sitting up here in front of the room and to look out at all of you and to see just this sea of serenity. You know, everybody looks so peaceful and tranquil and calm and you know, sometimes ecstatic. And, but being an experienced meditator, you know, I know <laughs> what's really going on. You know, sometimes it seems that if we could just attach loudspeakers to people's minds, you know, to actually hear what's going on as we sit here, it would just be deafening. But this is what is natural, is conditioned, is these visiting forces, these defilements. And so the question is how to work most skillfully with them in abandoning what is hurting us, cultivating what is helping us. The first of the hindrances is the force of desire or attachment or greed or grasping. It's when the mind sticks to something and just doesn't want to let go. It's like a state of enchantment. It's not that this feeling or this state is bad or wrong or should be condemned, but it's important to understand that it actually does bring us quite a bit of 
constriction and of suffering. For one thing, it tends to give us tunnel vision so that through the force of greed or desire, we define what it is we think we need in order to be happy. And we fix upon this as though it were the only possibility. We fix upon this object or this person and we make it very solid, very real. What do we actually need in order to be happy is a very profound question. I think about this every time I go traveling in Asia, where it would be easy to to go to a country where life is much more simple with a long list of what I require in order to be happy. And so amazing after simplifying my life in that way to realize that I don't need any of those things really in order to be happy. But if I were to approach that list with strong conviction, I would never have the courage to go. And so my life would be, would be narrowed because of those needs or those wants or those desires. It is the force of desire itself that produces the difficulty and not the object. Something that is quite interesting to observe in people in retreats is how while the force of desire can stay the same, the objects go through quite a bit of change. You might have walked in here thinking, you know, if only I had a new car, then I would be really happy. And by this, the third day of the retreat, you might be thinking, if only I had a chocolate chip cookie, you know, that would be the summit of all delightful experience. The objects change a lot, but that force, that stickiness, is just the same. Desire or attachment is a problem because we begin to believe that people or objects can provide for us, can give to us something that they actually can never give to us. And that is a happiness beyond time, beyond conditionality. One of my new favorite examples of this is a new perfume that is called samsara perfume. And those of you who know any Buddhist terminology know that samsara is actually the word for this round of rebirth of continual coming and going and change and restlessness and wandering and suffering. And so it's a very unusual name for a perfume. <laughs> and this is the advertisement from the insert in Samsara perfume. It says, a sense of serenity, a new and rare fragrance where sandalwood and jasmine rain, rich and lingering, subtle yet persistent. <laughs> To touch the innermost senses, samsara, a timeless fulfillment. (laughs) And it costs about $75 for a quarter of a fluid ounce. So just think about that, a timeless fulfillment, eternal and never changing, for only $75. (coughs) And so very often what we think we need in order to be happy is in fact someone else's construct of reality. It's an advertisement that somebody created. 
To believe that things will give us what, in fact, they can never give us is a problem. To look for a sense of happiness that will never change and never be broken and never be marred in anything that is, by definition, changing and moving and in flux and arising and passing away is a big problem. We feel very dissatisfied as objects do change. We invest so much hope and so much projection in a person or an object or a thing, and then it changes, and we feel so disappointed, and we feel desire for more and more. I mean, who has not been infatuated with somebody only to look back two months later or six months later or a year later and think, what was that about? You know, what was that infatuation? What was that enchantment? What was that mystique? It's very interesting when we realize that our happiness, in fact, is not based on having fulfillment of an object of desire. When we have desire or attachment in the mind, we are necessarily focusing on what we don't have rather than on what we do have. And so there's very little gratitude. Or we're focusing on what we have with fear or anxiety about the possibility of it changing. So there's very little serenity or security. We become very tense and afraid as we try to keep things from changing. It was a point in my practice, not in the very, very beginning, but after some time, when I began experiencing a lot of pleasant feelings. I would sit down and I'd have all of these nice sensations in my body and it felt like I was floating in the air and it was all very nice. And I'd have all of these lovely mind states going on, very peaceful and very happy. And right away I would start to think, oh, isn't it going to be wonderful living the entire rest of my life in just this state? <laughs> and I would begin to fantasize about how in five years or in ten years I'd go back home to New York and I'd be kind of floating down the street, wearing my white sari, and having this beatific smile on my face. And every single time, 20 minutes later, or half an hour later, or 45 minutes later, it changed. I would get bored, or I would get restless, or my knee would start to hurt, or something would happen so that that state went away. And every single time, I thought, what did I do wrong? I must have done something wrong, or it wouldn't have changed. But it's not that I did something wrong, it's that things do change. And our attachment or our clinging brings us out of harmony with this fact of life. The state of attachment also can easily lead to resentment as we view other people or other experiences as obstructions to our gratification. We begin to compete for the things that we see as very limited, that we hope will bring us perfect happiness. Because our happiness seems to be contained in some very limited object or experience or person, we feel we have to fight for it. When in fact, the universe is not limited at all, and our happiness is not limited in that way. It's not tied into a certain condition being a certain way, or being unchanging. It is limitless. 
Desire is seen as the root of suffering in the Buddha's teaching because of two aspects. One is the seeking aspect, which is always looking. And that is considered suffering because it's endless. It just goes on and on and on. And the other aspect is that guarding aspect, feeling we need to hold on. We need to protect what we have. We can't allow it to change. We can't allow it to move. Desire is considered the near enemy of metta, of loving kindness. Because in that state of attachment, we are seeking and we are guarding rather than giving. We enter into a certain kind of exchange mentality. I will love you as long as you fulfill the following 15 conditions and as long as you don't change and as long as things go this way and as long as I can control them or whatever it is. There's a sense of exchange. Within that state, the loving feeling that we have can be limited to certain people or certain experiences because they seem to give us what we want. Whereas actually metta can be boundless, it can be limitless, it can be who we are. That natural radiance of the mind that's not dependent on things being a certain way. It can be open, it can be freely given. This is the first of the hindrances is desire or attachment which will constrain us and which will limit us. The second hindrance is the opposite force, and it's the force of aversion or anger. And that is the far enemy, or the complete opposite of the state of metta. It's when we strike out against what's happening, wanting to separate from it, defining what is happening as unbearable, saying, I cannot bear this to be the way that it is. It's a state of aversion which has many, many different forms ranging from anger to fear to guilt to impatience to grief to disappointment to anxiety. In many ways, as a force in the mind, it's quite a bit easier to work with than desire because it's so clearly painful. When we're lost in attachment, there's a kind of smoothness to it as we hope we'll get what we want and that it will finally bring us that perfect happiness. There's a smoothness, there's an anticipation, there's a certain pleasure to it. But anger is painful from the beginning. It's very rough, it's very difficult. It would be easy to confuse a lot of different issues about a force like anger. And it's important that we can see the distinction between overcoming a fear of a state like that and being overwhelmed by it. It's true that to know ourselves fully, we have to be able to know all that we feel. If something is defined within us as being unacceptable or unbearable, we can open to it, we can acknowledge it, we can feel it, then we're limited, we're bound. To be able to feel it and to recognize it to see it face to face, directly, to see its true nature is very important.
Otherwise, we'll engage in a whole range of methodologies of self-deception to try to avoid certain things that are just too difficult to feel. But to overcome our fear of a state such as anger is very different from striking out with anger, hurting somebody or ourselves out of anger, allowing it to rule us so that we're in some way diminished from our own potential. And Buddha described it in this way. He said, Anger, with its poison source and fevered climax, is murderously sweet. And it is. It's murderously sweet. It's a very great but short-lived satisfaction because we feel powerful, we feel strong. And there's often a long-lived suffering as we feel the consequences of our actions or things that we've said. And we face more than anything the fact that anger is very isolating. It's pulling back. It's separating. It's striking out. This is a force of isolation and disconnection. Anger has a certain endless quality to it. And we probably all know people who are bound to one another through relationships of anger as strongly as any two people could be through desire. How year after year they are bound to one another in some strange way through their anger as much as two people can be through love or desire. What we discover in the process of looking inside and cultivating a loving heart is that, in fact, we do not need to be agents of revenge in this lifetime. That if somebody has hurt us or harmed us and we are sitting here lost in fantasies about all the ways we would like to hurt or harm them, that, in fact, we are the ones who are suffering from that. That this person has just gone on to live their lives or may, in fact, have died, but we are the ones who are sitting here and burning. And so out of love and compassion for ourselves, we learn to let go. There was a time when I was doing a retreat and my mind was absolutely fixated on a person that I knew and all of their problems and all of their faults and all of their defilements. And just hour after hour as I was sitting there, I ran through the catalog of everything that was wrong about them and just kept going on and on. You know, he does this and he does that and he has that way of doing that that I can't stand and it's terrible. And hour after hour and day after day it went on until finally I said to myself, well, if kleses or defilements are supposed to be torments of the mind, why am I being tormented by his defilements? You know, let him be tormented by his defilements. I can just go on. You know, let me be tormented by my own if I have to, but why add his? And we see that obsessive quality looking for fault. We practice letting go actually based on an understanding of the law of karma, which in a very, very simple 
understanding means that actions have consequences, that based upon the intention or the intentional force of an action, there will be consequences. That if we or anybody acts motivated in an unskillful way, there will be painful consequences. And that if somebody acts in a way that is in harmony, that is skillful, there will be beautiful consequences. And that is not something we contrive. That is like a law of nature. You cannot bring pain to another being without bringing it upon yourself as well, sooner or later, always, inevitably. We do not have to be agents of revenge for other people's actions. If they've created harm, they will suffer. It has nothing to do with us. And if they have created happiness, they will rejoice. We don't have to make it so. This is a law of nature. A very powerful image for me of this comes from a legend that surrounds the Buddha's enlightenment, where as Bodhisattva, as a kind of aspirant towards enlightenment, he was sitting under the Bodhi tree. And this, this legendary force called Mara appears and tries to tempt him away from his determination to understand completely, to be free. Mara in many ways tried to tempt him away, producing hailstorms and rainstorms and desirable figures in all kinds of ways. He tried to have him give up this determination. Throughout all of it, the Bodhisattva remained very steadfast and still, not being moved or swayed by these various temptations or these challenges. The last challenge of Mara was actually that of doubt, or more precisely, self-doubt, in which he appeared in front of the Bodhisattva and said, by what right are you even sitting there with the thought that you are capable of enlightenment, that you are capable of freedom? In response to this final challenge, said that the Bodhisattva, in a very famous mudra, which appears in many Buddha images, reached out with his hand over his knee and touched the earth. He called upon the earth itself to bear witness to all of the lifetimes in which he had practiced qualities such as generosity and morality and love and patience. It was the force field of all of these qualities that had brought him to that moment and that, in effect, gave him the right to be seeking complete freedom and total happiness. He reached over and touched the earth and asked the earth to bear witness. Mara fled. The Bodhisattva sat on through the night, and at the first arising of the dawn, he became enlightened. I think of it in this way, that the earth is bearing witness that there's nothing forgotten, there is nothing lost. We do not have to define our lives in such a way that we are trying to make sure that other people suffer from the consequences of their actions. When we or they act out of a loving heart with generosity and with wisdom, there will be happiness. When we or they act out of anger, out of desire, out of fear, there will be unhappiness sooner or later. And the earth is bearing witness. We ourselves can let go. We can be free. 
is how we can understand the power of loving kindness in the second of these hindrances of aversion or anger. The third of the hindrances is the state of sleepiness or sloth and torpor where the mind becomes very heavy and dull and unwieldy. There's often a lot of boredom or feeling of disconnection from what's going on. It's as though in doing the metta, the phrases become like a lullaby and they just put you to sleep. I've had people say to me that as they're saying, may you be happy, may you be happy, may you be happy, they actually find themselves saying something like, may you fall asleep, may you fall asleep, may you fall asleep, until they, in fact, fall asleep. We get very drowsy and very sluggish, and at times there's this very dreamy, drifty kind of state, which can be very peaceful, but without any real energy. Basically, in our lives, we're used to a certain degree of stimulation, and we count on that. We rely upon that for a sense of wakefulness, of presence. As things get increasingly subtle, we have to adjust or we get very dull. We have to fine-tune our own awareness to that degree of subtlety. We have to put forth that much more energy to be sensitive and to be wakeful as the practice goes on. The next of the hindrances is also the opposite of that, and that's the state of restlessness. We feel lots and lots and lots of energy, but no serenity, no groundedness with it. It's often a state of worry or obsessive planning, sometimes a state of guilt. The body can be just filled with restless energy and the mind going on and on and on with planning or with guilt. Restlessness, interestingly enough, often comes from a desire to control our experience. And when we realize that, in fact, we can't control our experience, we panic. We feel that things are getting outside of control, and so we try to hold on even tighter. We try to carve it out according to our our wish, our desire. And that's what obsessive planning is about. It's an effort to control the future so that we can feel confident, we can feel secure or certain. Restlessness is a very anxious and agitated state, which is also true for the force of guilt in the mind. There's an interesting distinction that's made in the Buddhist psychology between remorse and guilt. Remorse is considered a very skillful or wholesome state of mind that leads to happiness. When we see or we recognize that we've done something that isn't really right. We see that fully. We essentially can forgive ourselves for it by letting go and having the energy to begin again, to renew a commitment to not harming or to being loving or whatever. We have the energy with that mind state to actually forgive and let go and look at our actions so that we do not go on repeating the same mistakes. Guilt, on the other hand, is considered unwholesome or unskillful. It's like a defilement because it really is a state of self-hatred. It's like lacerating ourselves for things that we have done, can no longer do anything about. 
but we go over them and over them without the ability to let go of them. It's not a state that actually energizes us, that gives us any energy to transform our actions. It's very draining or debilitating rather than being energizing. Very often in practice, as we go deeper, many things come up, many memories of things we've done or said that were unskillful and that have brought pain to ourselves or others because the process is one of purification. It's very important as we see these things that we do let go, that we don't create a solid reality, a sense of who we are based on these experiences, that we don't fall into this kind of agitation and restlessness of guilt. And then the last of the hindrances is that of doubt, which is also a state that separates us from the experience of what is actually going on. We purposely move away from the experience in the moment, from the process, so that we can scrutinize it, and we can compare it to something else, and we can analyze it, and we can judge it. It's really like comparing mind. You know, why am I doing this? Is this worth doing? Am I doing it right? Why would anybody want to do this? And all of the various thoughts that come and go. It's the mind that can't settle anywhere because it's always seeking to compare and assess. When the mind is caught in doubt, we actually can't make any movement because we are so completely separate from what is going on. There's a certain kind of skepticism which is really very healthy. It's important not to be gullible and just to believe something because somebody says so. It's very important that our sense of what is true is rooted in our own direct experience and nowhere else. But doubt itself tends to keep us from being able to experience a process fully. We can't trust our own perception of the truth because we're not, in fact, willing to explore and examine to the very depth of something. We're holding back. We're judging. We're analyzing. We're not actually allowing ourselves an in-depth experience. And so our sense of truth is based on some model, some conceptualization. My strongest experience of this was somewhat early on in my practice when I had a Burmese teacher that I respected and liked a lot. And I also had a Tibetan teacher that I respected and liked a lot. And I had a lot of doubt about which of the two practices I should do. And so, in effect, I did neither of them. I just sat and thought all the time about which practice I should do. Whenever I was with my Burmese teacher, I would ask him what he thought about Tibetan practice, which he knew nothing about. Whenever I was with my Tibetan teacher, I would ask him what he thought about Burmese practice, which he knew nothing about. So not only was I not doing any practice, I also wasn't learning anything, because I wasn't asking anybody about things they actually knew about. And this went on and on and on and on, and I finally said, just do something. You know, do any practice, do either practice, but do it. You know, do it without holding back, without all of this obsessing, without all of this judging. See for yourself. You know, don't try to figure it out from the sidelines. Go right into it and see for yourself. 
This is very important. These are the five hindrances of attachment and aversion, sleepiness or sloth, restlessness and doubt. They come up quite a lot and it's very important to be able to recognize them for what they are. To see first of all that they are just visitors. They are visiting and how we relate to them will determine how long they stay. We can see that they are visiting. They are not ourselves. They are not solid, real entities that belong to us. We see that they're not me, they're not mine, they're not self. The transient forces which are coming and going in the mind, producing certain consequences. To see that they cause suffering, they're difficult, they're constricting, they do not in fact give us what we want. They're not bad and they're not evil, but we do not need to cultivate them because they will not give us what in fact we want. They, in fact, do take us away from our sense of purpose, from what we are setting out to do. They promise a lot and they actually provide very little. It's like anger, for example, promises this very good feeling of righteousness, of being better than somebody else, of seeing something that someone else can't see. But how much pain comes along with that? And sleepiness promises the pleasure of just fogging out, of not having to repeat those phrases, of not feeling anything, of not having to pay attention. But that's not really a very fulfilling state, just to be fogged out like that. It's not very much happiness. So we see both sides about these forces, that they're not self, they're not permanent, they're not solid, and they're also unsatisfying that they are unskillful. And so we practice to let go. Out of love for ourselves and acknowledgement of our potential, we continually let go of these elements as they arise. We abandon them. We let go and let go and let go. They will arise over and over and over again. There is no doubt about that. They will definitely come. But what we do in the practice is create enough space so that they become like the paint that's thrown in space, thrown in the air. They do not land, they do not take root, they do not grow. In a concentration practice such as metta, this letting go is essential in the practice. We let go again and again and again and shepherd the mind back to the chosen object, which is the repetition of those phrases. Not because we condemn these states or we're afraid of them, but because in some sense we don't need them. We can let go of them and come back to the phrases, to our sense of purpose. The gentleness in this is very important. We don't want the solution to be worse than the problem. Somebody was just telling me this story about a time that he was traveling in India and he was getting on this bus to go on this long mountain drive. These mountain drives are really scary because they're just lots of hairpin turns and 
vehicles and all kinds of things coming from the other direction. And, and there are many times when buses actually do go over the side of the mountain. And this was about a 10-hour drive ahead of him. And the bus driver appeared completely drunk. And the way that the conductor dealt with this problem was he pulled out a set of handcuffs and he handcuffed the driver to the steering wheel so that he couldn't get away. And then every time the driver started nodding out from being drunk and asleep, he'd hit him and he'd wake up. And so my poor friend was in this bus for 10 hours watching this scenario play out. And I thought about it as an incredible example of the solution being worse than the problem. <laughs> to learn to let go out of complete compassion for ourselves. Not with anger, not with fear, just let go and let go and let go. These states are transient, they're just visiting. We can let go. And we do that over and over again. Sometimes if they arise in such an overwhelming fashion, that we lose touch with that, then we work in many ways to bring balance to the mind. If the desire or the anger or the sleepiness is just too strong, we try to surround that experience with a loving mind to acknowledge that this is the truth of the present moment, that this is what's happening, and to be at ease about it, to be calm about that, to say, okay, now there's anger. Now there's desire, now there's sleepiness. To see how much of a loving energy we can surround that state with. And then when we can, we let go. And we come back to the phrases. We try to bring things into balance in a very gentle way. If you're feeling quite sleepy, then when you get up to walk, walk quickly. Try to just raise the energy, the physical energy of the system. Go outside and walk. Walk for the whole period so that you really are bringing some energy rather than walking for a few minutes and then giving up. If you're sitting and you're starting to get very sleepy, you sit straighter, take a few deep breaths. Really aim the mind in the moment at a single phrase. Don't worry about all the phrases yet to come and all of those that have already gone by. It's just this one moment, right here and now. And if you come to that place, there will be clarity for that moment. And then you renew it over and over again. If you're feeling a lot of anger arising, See if you can take a stronger interest in the phrases. Actually come closer to them so that they're not just rote expressions. What do they really mean? If you're really taking an interest or connecting to the meaning, that will bring us closer to what's happening in the moment. And since anger is a state of pushing away, we can't be coming closer and pushing away at the same time the anger will be balanced out by that interest. Come very close to the phrases. Feel what they mean. If you feel a lot of desire or attachment coming up, you can practice concentration, which is one-pointedness. 
so that the voice of desire may come, but we're not continually pulled away by it. The voice of desire promises many things. It says, samsara is a timeless fulfillment. It says, if I only got up from the sitting and had a cup of tea, everything would be perfect. But we can see that voice come and go when there's steadiness, when there's stability in what we're doing. And so we cultivate one-pointedness. If you're feeling a lot of restlessness, the balance for that is actually happiness. Happiness comes from being simple not to flood the mind with a lot of possibilities and complex turnings of the practice, but to stay simple with the phrases, to keep them simple, to do one phrase at a time and not to judge the experience, not to pull away from it in order to evaluate it. The balancing for doubt is the ability to sustain attention because doubt is, in fact, a very jumpy state. We were jumping all of the time from one thing to another. Or should I practice in this way or in that way or with this person or with that person? But to settle, to be able to sustain our attention, to stay with the phrase throughout that phrase, and then the next one, and then the next one, not to be pulled away from it, but to come very close to it and to sustain that connection throughout the entire phrase. You actually find that the doubt will start to fall away. We make these kinds of efforts also very gently out of a lot of compassion for ourselves. We can make all of these efforts seeing just suffering and the end of suffering without judging and without condemning ourselves can make this kind of effort to cultivate the good, to abandon that which is unskillful, and to come into balance. And that is really all we have to do, is to make that, is to have that purity of intention, and to make that kind of pure effort, to cultivate the good, to abandon that which is unskillful, moment after moment. I'll close with a quotation from T.S. Eliot, who said, For us there is only the trying, the rest is not our business. So let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.